us to have. He knows the prayer that he wants us to pray with someone today. He knows before you ever arrive. It's up to you when you get here. It's up to me when I get here to have that conversation, to pray that prayer, to read that text, to open our minds to seeing something maybe we never saw before in the text. That's up to us. And so, so many things to consider, and it's just so awesome to be in his house today. We're going to talk a little bit briefly about Jesus' childhood today. It's this fascinating mystery. It's this amazing mystery. There's almost nothing about Jesus' childhood. Now, my wife, as she was reading through things and proofreading for me, she's my editor. Um, she, she goes through and corrects, corrects as many of my grammatical errors that we can get out of the way. Um, it is true, David, I do often speak in rhyme. That's not intentional. It just happens. My, you can ask my kids. I'll even stop and go, you know. Anyway, but I, I do that. It, it is true. That does happen sometimes. My wife wondered if maybe there's nothing recorded about Jesus' childhood because... They didn't want there to be. <laughs> they, they, they kind of protected Jesus. They, they didn't really have him out exposed to everyone for fear that ultimately something detrimental could happen to him. And so they, they just kind of kept it all under wraps. So his, his childhood is a mystery. Now, Matthew records one event that Luke doesn't. And I told you I wouldn't mix the gospel. So I'm not. I'm just going to state what happened. He records that famous visit of the Magi, the three kings. No, there's not three kings mentioned. There's three gifts mentioned, which, but it could have easily been one king. But we view these three old men on these little camels riding through the desert all by themselves. They would be dead if they did that, just so you know. If you read the whole story, you realize that when they come to Jerusalem and they, they talk to King Herod, the whole city of Jerusalem is scared to death because there's this entourage outside and no one knows what it is. That tells me it wasn't three old guys on three camels. Just saying. I think there's more to the story. And I really, I always do this every Christmas. I apologize. All of you are traditionalists. There were no kings at the manger scene. So destroy your manger scene in your front lawn. Get rid of the kings because they're not there. I know. I'm that way about it. It's just true. They weren't there. All right. Throw the wise men away. They were not there. All right. Two or three years later, they showed up. That's how long it took for them to get there. Yeah, <laughs> just keep that in mind, all right? Jesus was not a little baby when they showed up. He was probably at least two by the time that they finally arrived. And we could talk about whether or not they were still in Bethlehem, but that's a whole other story, right? Anyway, we'll get to that. They didn't make the manger scene. But Matthew is the only other one that records anything about Jesus' childhood. He records that famous escape to Egypt as Herod has ordered the destruction of all boys under the age of two from Bethlehem. Which means that it could have been in Bethlehem, or they could have been back in Nazareth. But you see, the records in Bethlehem would have indicated that there was a son born to someone from Nazareth, and they would have found that boy and killed him as well, regardless of where Jesus was. They stayed there till King Herod died. King Herod was an evil man, as we'll talk about just briefly today. And they returned back to Nazareth. There's only one other event in all of Jesus' childhood that's recorded. It is all a big, giant mystery, and it's found in this text today. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 40, it says that the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. That's vague. That literally covers from age one month to age 12 in the life of Jesus. That sentence right there. That's all. That's there. But then Luke, for some reason, interrupts his account, his, his gospel story, with one instance, one moment from Jesus' childhood. And it's a famous story. Many of you probably have heard it before. It begins in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Now, that verse is important for us parents to understand. Number one, his parents worshipped with Jesus every Saturday, the Sabbath, in 
Nazareth in their little bitty town. But every year they were absolutely faithful to the law of Moses and they traveled back to Jerusalem and they went to celebrate this feast of the Passover every year of Jesus' life. They were dedicated to the Lord and they were dedicated to his laws. They were setting a great example, not only for Jesus, but for his brothers and sisters as well. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. I know it's crazy and we don't think of it, but it's true. And by age 12, he would have had several of those things back then. So 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. You see, Jesus' family traveled with a large group. You wouldn't travel alone. Why? Because it wasn't safe to travel alone. You always traveled in groups. And so this would have been family. This would have been other friends from the town of Nazareth. They trusted Jesus. They'd done this 11 times before. Every other trip he'd made at home, why wouldn't he this time, right? Thinking he, Jesus, was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. (laughs) They didn't find him. So they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, after three days, get that number three, after three days they found him. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that's the significant number, the number three days, the tomb, the death. The I'm not going to go there. I think that's silly. Maybe it has meaning. I really doubt it. Okay, here's the thing. After three days they found him. Now, how many of you can remember hearing this story like as a child? I, I can really remember this story as a child. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, Mary and Joseph, what losers. Like, how do you lose your kid for three days, right? Think about it. They didn't just lose their kid. They lost the Son of God for three days, right? Like, it just blows my mind. How could they do that? They forgot the Son of God. Like, I don't want that on my resume. You know, that seems like a bad thing. They lost the Messiah. It's looking around. What do you do? Three days, right? Okay, so the parents, here's the thing. Before we're too hard on Mary and Joseph, I know for a fact I've heard stories of some of you who have left your children here at Berea over the years and forgot them. You went off to lunch. Well, I thought you had them. Well, I thought you had them. That's the game they were playing here. Mary and Joseph, I thought you. I was you. I mean, I went, ah, what do we do? Yikes. It happens, right? Some of you have probably lost a child like that before. Maybe it was in a grocery store or a uh, department store and they were hiding in the middle of the clothes rack. Anyone? Ever? Yeah, okay. Maybe they were outside playing and they didn't tell you they were going to their friend's house and you're frantically combing the neighborhood, heart racing, mind going, every possible scenario that could possibly happen, 100% of which are bad, right? We don't ever think good things, so we're always thinking the bad things about that. They're scared for the life of their child. Imagine them going through hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem who are there for the festival, desperately searching for their 12-year-old boy, wondering what could have possibly happened to him. It would have been a very intense situation for Mary and Joseph. But notice that in Luke, there's no judgment There's no judgment of of the situation of Mary, of Joseph, or or, or that they failed in any way. There's no, no condemnation of them. They were doing what they had always done in the same way they'd always done it. Only this time, Jesus had strayed away to do what he needed to do to prepare himself for what lied ahead, and they didn't know that he had done that. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers and listening to them, asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents came in, they saw him. They were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching 
for you. Why were you searching for me? (laughs) Jesus asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And verse 50 gives us a real big clue of something that we've always, we always wonder. They didn't understand. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. It says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But once again, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. They found him. Praise God, they didn't lose the Messiah. They found him. That's a good thing. After frantically searching, they found him. And there he was in his father's house, the temple, his father's house, asking questions of the religious leaders. And his questions, they must have been brilliant in what he was saying. Everyone watching was impressed by this little kid asking these questions, interacting with the professionals. And Jesus was just taking it all in. He understood their answers So the question becomes, was 12-year-old Jesus exhibiting some type of supernatural I am God power as the author of all knowledge, or was he just a little bit beyond his years in understanding as a child? Now, I prefer to believe the latter. I don't think baby Jesus was walking around performing miracles for everyone. I don't believe that. I don't believe anything happened until the Spirit came upon him after his baptism that we'll talk about in two weeks. And so I think he was just able to fully harness the power of man, our ability to learn and reason and think and understand things. You know, we still see that today. You do know that, right? You've seen the stories of children graduating college, haven't you? We can do that. We're capable. Our minds are capable of doing that if we tap into it. They breeze through high school. They graduate college. The youngest ever, I think still on record, is a man named Michael Kearney. He graduated college at age 10. 10. Grad school at age 14, second grad degree by 17, by 21 he had four, and don't worry, they were in little nothing topics, anthropology, computer science, geology, and chemistry were his graduate degrees. We can do that. I don't know if you know that. Human beings were capable of learning in that way. Mom, well, mom, of course, Mary was worried. I understand. I would have been too had I been her or Joseph. Her question to Jesus wasn't in anger. It was out of frustration, it was out of anxiety, it was out of fear for her son over the last three days. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus' answer indicates something for the very first time. He has some understanding at this moment that he is the son of God. It's more than just Father Abraham, Father God is our father. There's something more than that in Jesus' revelation here. If you listen to his response, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? The way Jesus phrases that should make us believe that maybe the first place Mary and Joseph should have looked when they got back to town was the temple. But that wasn't what they did. They thought like humans. And they went to his friend's house. And they went to the places where he ate. And they went to the places where they had visited. And all of those places instead of the temple where they arrived at finally At least they shouldn't have been surprised that he had stayed behind. And it's at that point that we get to verse 50 and we learn that Mary and Joseph do not fully understand what is happening in this moment. Now, before you are too hard on them, understand that everyone who was close to Jesus throughout his course of his ministry would say the same thing. You read it and they didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand what he was doing. They didn't understand who he really was. Why would Mary and Joseph be any different? 
Had Mary forgotten magically the angel Gabriel and what he said to her? No, I don't think so. It was 12 years ago, but I don't think she forgot that moment. (laughs) I think that probably stuck with her her whole life. Or did she think that, hey, I've raised this kid for 12 years and everything so far has been pretty normal? Is this just kind of the way it's always going to be? And she was surprised that the time had now come for things to change. And his purpose was beginning to be fulfilled. Now, these are all great questions that we don't know the answer to. They're for us to wonder and dream and think about. Yeah, it's okay to do that with Scripture. Did you know that? There aren't always concrete answers to every little nuance. We get to think and wonder, what would I have done? If that were me in that situation, what would I be thinking? It's an amazing thing to do if you've never let yourself go in that. You should. You should. They're great questions to ponder. And as I said, we know throughout the rest of Jesus' life, he was obedient to his parents. He never once sinned against them. This wasn't a sin. He didn't disobey them. He stayed behind to learn. There was nothing more required of him. And it says at that, Mary continued to store these things up in her treasure chest of her heart and those memories that she had. Oh, remember that time when baby Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, stayed back at the temple. Ah, scared us to death, but I see what he was doing now. Just like back in chapter 2, verse 19, when the shepherds came in and Jesus was born. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. A lot of people spend a lot of time explaining that verse. You know what? You don't need to. That's all we know. That's all, folks. That's the rest of Jesus' life until the moment that he is baptized in Luke 3, 21 or so. That's all we know. Why did Luke record this incident? He didn't have to. No one else did. So why? Why did he do it? I am just so thankful that he did because it teaches us a couple of incredible things. First, it reveals the humanity of his parents. Mary and Joseph were mom and dad just like you and I. They make mistakes. They forgot their son. They didn't realize he wasn't with them. They freaked out when they couldn't find him. They were like, what are you doing, kid? You know, this is the son of God they're speaking to, remember. And so they totally were out of it when they found him. They were out of their minds, worried for Jesus. And that's important that we know they were human, real people, just like you and me. They thought everything was okay until it wasn't okay. We've all been there, unintentionally forgotten the poor little boy, but the story, the details, those things, they're too, too specific, too real not to be true. Why would you make up a story like that and stick it in here? It just doesn't even make sense to do that. But it also gives us a peek into the life of Jesus, his family life. We get to see what Jesus was into. Shockingly, Jesus liked to hang out at church. Who knew, right? He wasn't a know-it-all. He wanted to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear about his father described by others. Now, it's fascinating to wonder, what did Jesus know about who he was at age 12? As he heard those prophets of old prophesying about him coming, when did he realize? When was the switch flipped and he's like, wait a minute, that's me. (laughs) We'll actually answer that question here pretty soon in a few chapters, so we'll get to that. But it's a fascinating thing to think about because this event reveals the heart of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, even the wisdom and the knowledge of Jesus. He was pursuing his father at a very young age. And even as a child left behind, he left behind an example for us. This is how you pursue my father. You stick around a little extra. You ask a few more questions. You listen a little more closely and you will learn from his teachings. 
To new a believer, to a brand new believer especially, which remember that's who Luke's writing to, convincing people, this tells you that Jesus didn't magically one day just become Jesus. He had to work at it. He had to study. He had to be prepared. He had to learn. Remember, he was fully human as well. And sometimes we forget that about Jesus. Fully God, but fully man. It didn't magically happen. He had to put in the work. He prepared himself for what was to come. And he sought his Father. He loved the Word of God, and he wanted to know more. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And with man, the final statement of Jesus' childhood is the rest of his life from age 12 to age about 30 or so. Luke 30, 21, where we'll be here in a couple weeks. The other half of the story we've started is John the Baptist. So what about him? Where is he at now, right? So we fast forward. We got Jesus at 12. Now we're fast forwarding to John as a man. He's begun his ministry. We left John out in the wilderness to grow up. I don't know if he's raised by wolves or what, but he was grown up out in the wilderness all by his lonesome, it sounds like, in the Bible. Uh, we know his parents were very elderly, so they probably weren't around for a long time in his childhood. So we don't know exactly how that all happened. But Luke records what happened as John's ministry began to take off. Now, one thing you can learn very quickly is that John's ministry lasted about three years. That sounds strikingly familiar to someone else's, doesn't it? Okay? He had about three years to prepare the way for Jesus. So chapter 3, beginning at the very beginning, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tatriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tatriarch of Iturian Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tatriarch of Albaline, and during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Boy, that's a whole lot of people, isn't it? That's a whole lot of people all at once. You know what that allows you to do? Almost give the specific date when this happened. Because there's so many rulers involved. The only debate here is, well, now there's never been two high priests. So why is he saying there's the rule of two high priests? Well, he's not. Actually, Caiaphas was the high priest, but his father-in-law gave him a whole lot of advice, let's just say. So they were kind of co-ruling. And you'll see both of their names later on in the Gospels as well. Look at all those details. Those are everybody in power. It nails down the date to exactly when John's ministry had begun to kick off. And wouldn't you know, it's just a few years before Jesus really gets going. The details matter when you're building a case. And Luke wants this foundation to be as absolutely firm as he possibly can. This is when the word of, the God, word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah, a, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way is smooth and all the people will see God's salvation. What an incredible message to share. Now Luke carefully points out at the very beginning, the word came to John. That is the exact same phraseology used in Jeremiah 1-2 as the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Hosea 1-1 as the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the prophet Micah in 1-1 and Haggai in 1-1 as well. You see, Luke wants to confirm John's place among the incredible prophets of God. But why did John live in the desert? Why didn't he hang out in the cities? Why wasn't he around the masses of people? Why was he all by himself? It's a great question. It could have been partially to avoid the cities, 
to protect his identity, to protect his purpose, much like Jesus did. Could have also been to avoid the sin and the temptation that surrounded all of those ancient cities, just like the cities today. See, earlier in Luke, Gabriel revealed something to Zechariah, that John was to be raised in a very specific way. You'll find it in chapter 1, verse 15. In essence, John was to take the vow of what was called a Nazarite. Some of you may or may not know what that is. So if you want to, you can turn right now to Numbers chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth, chapter, fourth book in the Bible. In Numbers chapter 6, it tells you exactly what a Nazarite is. I'm not going to explain all of it, but I'll give you just a little bit. Because a lot of times, if you've been around the church and you've studied John the Baptist, you have this idea in your mind of this really long-haired, kind of weird-looking guy out in the wilderness all by himself eating locusts and honey. And a lot of people think he was a little crazy. Well, he wasn't crazy, but all of everything else, that's pretty stinking accurate. John the baptizer was all of those things, and his look was pretty much that. But there was a reason. In Numbers chapter 6, this is recorded. If a man or a woman makes a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine or from other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins as long as they remain under the Nazarite vow. Remember, that was the command of Gabriel to Zechariah. They must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. And during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Now, there's a couple of famous Nazarites in the Bible. You might or might know, not know that term. One is a man named Samuel. Samuel was a great judge and prophet of the nation of Israel. He is the one who selected, anointed the first king of Israel, King Saul, and also anointed King David. He was a Nazarite as dedicated to the temple by his family, his mother in particular, who prayed for him to be born. But the most famous Nazarite of all, of course, was a man named Samson. Yes, Samson of Samson and Delilah fame. Yes, long hair. Yes, no alcohol. Wait a minute. Samson was always getting drunk. That's right. He had some issues with his commitment. And his issues led to his destruction, for sure, if you know the story. But that's not what we're talking about. Just wanted to give you that so you know the basis of where John the Baptist came from. He wasn't just this rogue guy. He was following this very strict sect that existed within the scriptures. And hopefully it paints the picture of John just a little bit better. He was different from everyone else. He was set apart completely for God's purpose. Now, John is in the wilderness outside the city, and people are, are flocking to him from all over to hear this message and to be baptized. Those people were convicted by his words. Their hearts were open to receiving this unique message. Now, you might say, but his message is the same as all the other prophets. Yes, you're absolutely right. His, nations were not, his words were not new to the nation of Israel, but... What was new is that these words haven't been spoken openly since the last of the great prophets, which was 400 years ago. This generation had never heard these words like this, calling to them to repent, calling to them to change their mind, to turn a new direction, to put aside their sinful ways of living and instead pursue a life of service to God. John then calls upon the words of the very prophet Isaiah as he is the one preparing the way. That's me. I'm John. That describes who I am. He knows his identity and what he is to do. He's claiming he is the one. He is the source to prepare this way. Now, he's not the only one to do that. 
the angel Gabriel told them, this is what your son is going to do. It was incredible news that he gave to Zechariah. In verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we're children of Abraham. He's got us. We're good. I, I tell you, you know what? That's great. You're children of Abraham. It doesn't matter. If God wants to, God can make these rocks rise up in the children of Abraham. So that status is kind of irrelevant. And then he goes on to tell them the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, those are the exact words almost that Jesus will later use in his teaching as well. We might be able to read those words and go, wow, man, he was harsh on those people. Dude, what's going on with John? He's like being mean. What's, what's the deal? Well, he lived by himself, I guess, so he didn't have to rely on everybody else's opinion. But here's the thing. They don't seem to have much mean to us. But if you were one of those people hearing them for the very, very first time, it would have shocked you. Here you are, coming out to hear this man speak, and he's calling you out. You're coming out to be baptized, and he's telling you, you know what? I don't know if your baptism is genuine. I don't know if you're taking this serious enough. Let me tell you how it is. This is how you really should respond. If there's going to be a true, genuine repentance, then there's got to be fruit. There's got to be change in your life. Something's got to give. Don't even try to claim your Jewishness out here. Get over it. Who cares that you're a child of Abraham? It doesn't matter at this point in time. We're all Abraham kids. We're good, John. No, you're not good. Let me tell you how not good you are. He takes them a step further and he tells them that your tree, if it's not producing fruit, it's going to get cut down, thrown in the fire. There's no use for you. And as a matter of fact, he goes a step further and says, actually, right now, the axe is at your root. It's not like it's going to happen way in the future. It's happening right now. This would have freaked them out. <laughs> Absolutely it would have. John is talking to an incredibly diverse group of people. He's not talking to just the churchgoers on a Sunday here. Okay, He is literally talking to tax collectors, specifically mentioned by name. He's talking to soldiers, specifically mentioned by name. He's talking to prostitutes. He's talking about people living lives of sin. And he's also talking to a group of people who have gathered who are devout Jews. He's talking to people who are priests. He's talking to people who are Pharisees who've come to see this curiosity in the wilderness. People who know that they're sinners, but put on a great show of moral supremacy for everyone else to see. And some of those people that John was preaching to, it says, were cut to the heart. Now, it's funny about that expression. They asked the question, what should we do then? The crowd asked. You know, that's the exact same response given to Peter's message in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. They've heard this great teaching. They're like, no, oh my goodness, what do we do, Peter? What do we do? And so John answers them. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Soldiers came to him. What should we do? And he replied, don't extort any money or accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And these are prophetic words that are repeated later by Jesus. These are the same advice that Jesus gives to these same people. For example, the rich man and Lazarus scenario, or the tax collector, Zacchaeus. John's words are echoed in those teachings of Jesus. He was indeed a prophet for sure. In verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly. They're like, oh wow, this guy's something. He's for real. I wonder if he's the Messiah. John, knowing their conversations, answered them, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is more powerful than I that will come, whose straps, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. As John continued to draw these crowds and they continued to grow, they began to wonder, maybe he's the one. And so he had to put an end to that really quick. How exciting would it have been to be going out, I wonder if this is the Messiah, going out to hear this guy talk, or maybe, depending on the message, how frightening it would have been to hear this man, John, talk. Because if what he's saying is true, I could be in trouble. This could be terrifying for sure. He was grabbing the attention. He was grabbing the headlines. Everyone, his old message was perfectly in line with Old Testament teachings. But he quickly put an end to all those rumors. No, 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 no. There's somebody else who's coming. He's going to baptize you with so much more. He's going to usher in the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God. You don't even know what that is yet, but I'm telling you, he's going to usher it in, and you will know when you receive that, that truth that will be realized on that famous day of Pentecost when the church is born. But then John goes a step further. He doesn't just deny that he's the Messiah. He says, actually, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to tie the man's sandals. I'm nobody. And then he goes on and he describes this baptism by fire a little more precisely. He uses a visual that we have absolutely no understanding of, but everyone there listening would have as they separate the edible wheat from the the trash, if you will. The farmer would literally take the winnowing fork, throw it up in the air, the seed, the wheat would fall back down to use, and the chaff would blow gently off to the side to be burnt up in the fire. They would use that as fuel for their ovens, for example. In other words, follow Jesus, receive the Spirit of God, or oppose Jesus and be burnt in forever fire. Those are your two options. John was so blunt. (laughs) He didn't mince words. He didn't change things to make them palatable for the people to hear. He didn't give them anything they wanted to hear, actually. With every truth he spoke, though, there was both this difficult reality of, oh, wow, this is going to be hard, tied in with this truth and grace. Hey, there's also this ability for you. If you want it, if you want the grace of God, you can receive it. But you see, that's up to you. It's your choice. Now, what we've got to remember is this is the first time that this generation of people had ever heard these words spoken to their face. Now, they might have heard it from the ancient scrolls. Their local rabbi might have read the ancient prophets preach against the ancient Israelites. And, oh, wow, they were such terrible people. They should have done a better job. Oh, look at how bad they were. And now it's them that are being called out. The prophecies are in their face. The impending doom is upon them, not their ancestors any long. It's their reality. It's their choice. They're being forced to evaluate their own lives and choose which they would follow. It's personal. Could I dare do the same thing to us this morning? Could I make this teaching personal for us? Do John's words cry out to us today in the same way they would have to that first generation, that initial audience? You see, as Theophilus would have read Luke's account here, he would have never heard the words of John the Baptist. But he's reading the words of of Luke's account. He would have been forced to evaluate his life and his relationship with his Savior. Is it real? Is there fruit in my life? 
Like the Jews, so many Christians today claim the title of Christian because their families went to church or maybe they went as a kid or maybe they visit every once in a while on a holiday, you know, just to say hi to God every once in a while, a couple times a year. But do we have a genuine relationship with Jesus? Is he Lord over our life? Is he in charge? What areas have we held on to tightly to ourselves? Because today is the day that John would tell you to repent and give that over to him. Luke's goal is to help us be certain of what we believe. But the problem is, in his reality of helping us become certain, he often crosses a line that actually crosses over from making us be certain to making sure that we're living out what we claim we believe. I believe that was completely intentional. Luke throws in one other little detail for us to end with today about John. It says in verse 19 that John rebuked Herod, the patriarch, because of his marriage to Herodias his brother's wife, and the other evil things that he had done. Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison, and John is arrested. John is silenced. Dare I say it, it's 2021. John just got canceled. He did. And in not so long, he really gets canceled by Herod. Why? Why did he get canceled? John got canceled because he's pointing out a slightly inconvenient truth about King Herod. You see, the king had stolen his brother's wife. I'll never know why. She appears to be a very evil woman, so I don't know what exactly he saw in her. Some political clout, I'm sure. But he did it. And John happened to take time in his presentations to mention the fact that, hey, just so you know, it's, it's really not right for you to steal your brother's wife, even if you're king. And he pointed out a few of, other, of the other of Herod's flaws. There were, there were many. So Herod locked him up, shut him up, and ultimately killed him. It's interesting. It's an interesting example for what you do when you stand up for what's right and what could happen to you. So here we go. We're right at the threshold. Everything's getting turned up a notch. John is, is revving everybody up, getting everybody ready for Jesus. They're flocking to him in masses. We see Jesus getting prepared for the ministry, studying under the tutelage of, of priests and teachers of the law, learning the word of God. Luke is filling in all kinds of details along the way to build this foundation for our faith before we ever get to Jesus being Jesus, if you will. It's an incredible journey that we get to be on together, but I'm going to be very honest with you for a moment here. It doesn't matter at all. Not even the tiniest little bit. If we walk away after hearing these words of John and his example and what he was telling the people, those words are just as true today as they were 2,000 years ago when he spoke them. If we walk away and none of that really matters to us, if we walk away hearing these words and we do not take them to heart, we do not apply them to our life, if you do not believe that they apply to you, or cannot be applied to us, if you think, you know what, I'm good on my own. I don't really need this Jesus guy until maybe later in life when I need that Jesus guy. If any of that applies to you, then I just beg of you to reconsider. I shared with you a couple weeks ago the honor that it is to study the Word of God together, to study these words while already knowing the end of the story it's such a privilege to get to do that. But if you don't know the end of the story, listen very closely. This ministry will end in three years with Jesus willingly, intentionally, purposefully offering up his life for yours and for mine. And he did so without one regret, without one Hesitation. He knew from before time that this would be the only way to restore a relationship with you and I. 
It's the only way it could happen. Yes, you and me, every sin we have ever committed on full display in his sight. He chose to love us and to prove his love for us. And then he left it up to us. Will we choose him? Will we accept what he has done for us? And once you've answered that initial question with the answer, yes, we pray that that answer is yes. Will we allow him to produce fruit in our life? Or will we keep holding on to our life as if it's our own to live? Will we continue to hold on to the pain and regret and things that we've done wrong? Or will we come forward and offer them up today? Will we be like the people that went out to John and resent him for this message because we think it's too bad, it's too harsh, it's too negative? Or will we embrace that message of John and say, what do I do? How do I change? God, what do you want to do in me? I'll keep saying this throughout this series and throughout my life probably. We will never become who God wants us to be by remaining who we are. If you're not different today when you leave here than you were when you came in, you're not allowing God to move you. Not Chris. No, no, no. Not David. Not Tyler. Not the rest of the worship team. You're not allowing God in. Let him in and see what he does in you. Here in a few moments, you'll be given a chance to respond first with communion and reminding yourself what that is all about, that incredible sacrifice that God made But then just after that, there's a chance for you to respond. The whole rest of this service, actually the whole rest of your life, every moment of every day, you have a chance to respond to the calling of your Savior and what He wants to do in your life. Will you answer that call? Father God, as we come before you today to study your word, it's such a great privilege. It's such a great honor. The more that we love you, the more that we love your word, the more time we spend in it, the more you reveal to us. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Father, you're always present. We have to let you in. I pray this morning that we let you in. And we see these teachings of John, not just for some ancient culture, but we see these teachings of John as a real-life prophet right in our face right now, calling us out in our sin and our guilt and our falling short and not following our Savior the way that we should, just claiming our, our Christian title and not producing any fruit. I don't think he would be any less harsh on us today. I don't think you would use him in any other way but to give that same message, that same word. But with all the harshness that it appears John speaks, there's always a truth to it, an amazing truth, an availability to God to be in your presence forever, a chance to repent and come before you and do what is right and what is good, and you will fully embrace and accept us. Those are always tied together in John's messages. Father, let us do that together as a congregation, as a family. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.